name's Justin LeClure, and I'm here today with Will Sloan. And you're listening to The Important Cinema Club. And today, we're covering exploitation films. For centuries, the world has been aware of the narcotic menace, Justin. And, you know, we've complacently watched as Asiatic countries attempt to rid themselves of the drug curse. We consider ourselves enlightened and think that we could never succumb to such a fate. But did you know that the use of marijuana is steadily increasing among the youth of today? I mean, that's the kind of serious message that we're going to get out today. Wait a minute. I thought there was going to be some hot rod racing, maybe some aliens, perhaps a beast that would rise from the sea. But it's not this kind of exploitation film that we're talking about today. The term exploitation film has become very broad, but we're talking about a specific era that lasted from the dawn of cinema to around 1959, but which really peaked in the 30s and 40s. During this year, the Motion Picture Association of America enforced a production code that Hollywood movie studios voluntarily submitted to that put strict limits on the sorts of subject matter that could be depicted in movies. So, for example, I'm quoting from the production code, the sanctity of the institution of marriage and the home shall be upheld. Pictures shall not infer that low forms of sex relationship are the accepted or common thing. Uh, adultery, sometimes necessary plot material, must not be explicitly treated or justified. Miscegenation, sex relationships between the white and black races, is forbidden. Sex hygiene and venereal disease are not subjects for motion picture. So, of course, the definition of an exploitation film during this period, here quoted to David F. Friedman, goes, The essence of exploitation was any subject that would forbidden. Miscegenation, abortion, unwed motherhood, venereal disease, all those subjects were fair game for the exploiter as long as it was in bad taste. I see you're reading from the best book on the subject, which is Eric Schaefer's Bold, Daring, Shocking True. In that book, he outlines uh, a couple of criteria that classical exploitation films typically fell under. The primary subject is a forbidden topic, so sex, sex hygiene, prostitution, drug use, nudity, something outlawed by the production code. They were made cheaply and with low production values. They were distributed independently, either by these independent entrepreneurs who made the movies themselves, or they were sold on a state's rights basis to smaller independent entrepreneurs, and they were exhibited in theaters that were not affiliated with major studios. Schaefer makes a point in the book to differentiate these exploitation films from stuff you would associate with Poverty Row, saying that Poverty Row, even a studio like Monogram, would have its own studio, it had its own staff, and it made films kind of like on a factory line. While these exploitationeers were incredibly independent, they would rent the materials, rent the cameras, and they would sometimes drain the life out of one movie for years and years and years. That's right. And, you know, the Poverty Row Studios, like Monogram, they conformed to the production code as well. And the production code was enforced because in the 20s and 30s, Hollywood had developed this reputation in more conservative parts of the country as being you know, this den of vice, this place that they had low California values, and they were creating entertainment that would preach their depraved gospel to more Christian parts of the country. Now, it sounds like we're trying to perhaps over-explain this concept, when in reality, what these films come down to is all the stuff you want to see that you're not supposed to see that it then package in an educational framework. Yes, because... Like these independent entrepreneurs, they would take the movies from town to town because Hollywood wasn't dealing in sex, and so that created a huge void in the market. Everyone's always interested in sex. But they still had to contend with these state censor boards. They still had to contend with what the laws were. And so 
You know, they would go from town to town with a movie like, oh, I don't know, Sex Maniac. And they would say, we are need to tell people the truth about unwed motherhood or about venereal disease or about the, the deadly narcotic menace. And we, we have to show this stuff so people understand it. Look at this guy in a doctor's outfit technically not a doctor, getting up in front of the stage and handing out pamphlets, $20 a pamphlet, for the education of the youth, who may just be sitting there to perhaps see some nudity or some really graphic medical footage of some venereal diseases. And excuse me, Mr. Censor Board, we have to show this so people can understand it. Lives are at stake if we don't show what a syphilis-ridden penis looks like. And what's this? You won't let me show it? Alrighty then, I will cut that footage out, we'll put out a cold version and it will still go on the circuit because education is important. Also, you alluded to some of the ballyhoo that surrounded these screenings. The really skillful exploitationeers, people like Kroger Bab, people like Dwayne Esper, would do things like hire people to play nurses and doctors to deliver lectures before or after the movie to to tell women, this is how you regulate your cycle. This is how you do your lovemaking at the right time in the month so that you won't become pregnant. Wait a minute. Those names, they sound very official and important, but aren't they related to the 40 thieves? (laughs) So, I mean... It was a small number of people who were making and distributing these movies, and they did develop, I think it was David F. Friedman who coined that term, right? They were called the 40 Thieves. They'd go from town to town and steal money from <laughs> basically yes. gullible patrons. And like these people faced huge opposition. It was hard work distributing these movies, getting them shown. But if you were willing to do the work... The most famous example is a movie from 1945 called Mom and Dad, which showed the actual birth of a baby. And a conservative estimate is that it grossed something like $40 million. And this is pure money going into the pocket of the filmmaker because he would have four-walled theaters get all the cut of any money coming in from these screenings. I mean, it could have. People have estimated it could have made as much as $100 million. (laughs) That's bananas. Which I I have trouble believing it was that much. But $40 million in 1940s money. Oh, my God. Mm. Mm -hmm. And so obviously a lot of people wanted to do this kind of work, but it was difficult work because only like 10 to 20 prints would often be made. Oftentimes it was the filmmakers or the distributors themselves, the people putting up the money that would go from theater to theater to show these movies. And you got to, you know, make a big racket when you arrive to get people to come to these screens. They need to know what is on screen, what is so dangerous. And it's very important to emphasize that the reason these movies were educational films, the reason that they dealt with subjects like sex in terms of uh, sexually transmitted diseases or pregnancy or stuff is because that's all they were legally allowed to do. Mm-hmm. In the 1950s, 1960s, 1970s, there were a continuing number of court cases that would make rulings such as, you know, I think the Supreme Court ruled that nudism per se was not obscene. So you got a bunch of nudist camp movies after that. But don't show me any balls, dicks, or bush. No thank you. That's right. And, you know, when I Am Curious Yellow came in and, and that was found is not obscene that opens some floodgates and then when deep throat came out in the 70s there were court cases all over the country about that i think deep throat is still technically banned in new york which eric, which i would not be enforced if that you showed it probably eric schaefer points out in his book that exploitation films during this period do not feature hardcore sex mm-hmm. that's very important because then you're not exploiting it in the specific way that all of these movies do which is like ah, ah, ah you shouldn't be watching this but look at it look Look at it. I mean, when I first heard of Mom and Dad, I heard about it from John Waters. I think that's where a lot of people hear about it for the first time, because he would talk about how when he was a kid, 
uh, the movie was coming to town and the nuns at his school would say that, oh, you'll go to hell if you see this movie. And John Waters would always say that the big appeal of it was that it showed the actual birth of a baby and that people would go see this movie excited to see a vagina. They'll just I mean, you get a, one. <laughs> but I don't know. Having now seen Mom and Dad, I don't know if people were actually aroused by it. I mean, there, there's so much in Mom and Dad that's, you know, the venereal disease stuff is pretty gross. I think what people did go to see it for was just like to think about sex, like just the act of thinking about sex was enough at the time. Speaking of venereal diseases, the first film we're going to talk about is all about that, to the point that it doesn't even, at least in the version that we feature, uh, saw, feature any breasts or anything like that, and that is Edgar G. Ulmer's Damage Lives. Well, of course, Edgar G. Ulmer is a favorite of the podcast, the poet of Poverty Row, the man who studied under F.W. Murnau in the great German expressionist film movement, came to Hollywood and, uh, you know, made a lot of movies uh, in Poverty Row and... Made one classic. I think at least two. Oh, two, right. Black Cat Detour. And uh, several others that I think are quite good. Mm -hmm. You know. Damage Lives. (laughs) Damage Lives. Well, in his interview with Peter Bogdanovich, he called it uh, a wonderful picture. Who am I to disagree? I think maybe because it probably played pretty well it got good reviews made a lot of money yeah so you know that kind of defines what a wonderful picture is for someone like Edgar G. Almer who's making them and breaking them. So this one came out in 1933. It was produced by Maxwell Cohen, the brother of Harry Cohen, the head of Columbia Pictures. The king of Poverty Row himself. To give you an idea of how difficult it could be to distribute this movie, this one actually did not get a license from the New York Censor Board for over four years. It was cut severely in Maryland and Ohio. I did read in the Schaefer book, though, that in Baltimore it sold 65,000 tickets, which was one-tenth of the city's adult population. <laughs> That's wild. One tenth of adults in Baltimore saw this movie. And what they're going to see is just, you know, a rich guy being like, oh boy, I got syphilis. How am I going to live through life now? Yeah. So the main character is a hotshot young executive. He has a wonderful girlfriend. He's planning to marry. He goes out for a night on the town with a client. The client has a date, a woman of easy virtue. I think it's fair to say. Uh, One thing leads to another. Mistakes are made. The next day, he proposes to his girlfriend. They marry. She becomes pregnant. But they find out that her unborn baby is diagnosed with syphilis. Where did he get this syphilis from? Well, he got it from the lady of the night that he met, who lives in a gigantic mansion. And when she learns that she has syphilis, of course, she commits suicide. So the pleasure of any Edgar G. Elmer movie is trying to find the crumbs of style (laughs) in there. I mean, you had trouble with this one. Yeah. I'm what about ta- that scene where the the woman is like walking through her apartment and the camera kind of drifts as it follows her? A little bit. There's a I montage like at the end where she's walking. Isn't she walking down a hallway and you see like eyes and stuff like that yeah. superimposed? There's a sequence where the man, which is a classic part of any of these exploitation films goes to a medical ward and the doctor is like look at this row of freaks <laughs> yeah one after another one room after another and they're just it's just a big empty room and the person just standing right in the middle of it being like ah I mean, at least this one doesn't have as many shots of, like, you know, penises and vaginas with sores and stuff well, on Well, supposedly them. there was an add-on, which you got to a lot of the exploitation films that did feature that kind of stuff. That's right. not in the version that we saw. Yeah, uh, Mom and Dad has a nightmarish, like, centerpiece reel of just horrific-looking Well, it's like organs. going to the freak show. Like, people, yeah. I mean, hoping to get perhaps titillated by some of these pictures. Yeah. And more importantly, they want to see stuff that they cannot see anywhere else. Yeah, stuff that was a tab 
clue to talk about to think about. Mm-hmm. I mean, look, we all think about sex. Not me. I'm I'm pure. But many of us think about sex, and uh, <laughs> in, in a society that's telling you not to think about it, you can see it up on screen. And I think that damage lies in terms of most of these films, it's pretty slick. Mm. Isn't there stories that it was originally funded by a Canadian governmental body? I'm unclear entirely because a lot of these movies, I mean, supposedly Reefer Madness was funded by a church group. Maybe it was. It was certainly distributed by more unscrupulous people. But yeah, I I mean, Damaged Lives does have Canadian money in it. It premiered in Toronto. So that's pretty exciting. To go back in time to be at the premiere of Damaged Lives. To see Edgar walking the red carpet. Uh, He probably didn't. (laughs) No, he was not there, I'm certain. (laughs) Edgar G. Elmer, there's there's only a certain amount of his visual flair, but he knew how to direct a movie. You Mm -hmm. know, it looks fine. It's okay. Yeah, it moves as fast as something like this can move. Yeah, I mean, if you're the sort of insane person who would watch this movie in the year 2022. Like us. Like us. Uh, We should point out that all the movies we're going to mention today are all available for free on the Kino Cult website, which is the official streaming service of Kino Films. And they, with the Library of Congress and something weird have done remasters of all the classic exploitation films. They've also put them on a beautiful Blu-ray series that they've also done in partnership with something weird video called Forbidden Fruits. So... I have all of them. You should collect all of them. They're just wonderful pieces of uh, preservation. And so you can actually get Damaged Lives in a beautiful, it's never going to look any better edition, as well as another version of the movie, because we didn't actually mention this was like an adaptation of a French text that was then readapted by Upton Sinclair Mm -hmm. under the title Damaged Goods. And then an official adaptation of the Upton Sinclair novel was made in 1937. Which is, yeah, it's also on the Blu-ray, and I haven't seen that one yet, although I hope to. One day I'll see every movie ever made. <laughs> but for now, you just watch Damaged Lives again. <laughs> so, Marijuana from 1936. This is directed by Dwayne Asper, who was one of the titans of exploitation film. One of those one of those road warriors who took him from town to town. He worked with his wife, Hildegard Stady. I love that name. She wrote the script for his films. Uh, she claimed to have had experience with uh, drug abuse in her family, to have known its horrors up close and personal. And this one is about the demon weed, marijuana, the hashish of the Orient, as the opening titles tell us. Now, when you're talking about these exploitation films, it's sometimes tough to have a good laugh about the ones that that are associated with, you know, venereal disease and people suffering from that. But when it's about, you know, the devil weed and how it makes people go crazy. Oh, yeah. Now, this is when you have a bunch of chuckles. I mean, this movie is rigorously researched. This one (laughs) will show you what happens. So, you know, we open at a local saloon. There are a lot of teenagers there drinking, dancing, kind of on the knife edge of being bad. But these are good kids. They just want to have a weenie roast on the weekend. And there are some some bad guys there, some drug peddlers there who have decided to give them a place where they can do their weenie roast. They start passing around the joint. Everyone starts laughing, laughing hysterically. And then what what do you do next? You start disrobing. You start skinny dipping. You start having sex on the beach. I mean, this is the madness that the devil weed brings to people. I mean, most people have seen Reefer Madness, but they maybe have not seen all these other drug-based films mm-hmm. like Marijuana or, you know, a favorite of mine, the Sam Newfield she should have said no. Oh, well, I mean, 
Okay, so fuck marijuana. You know what that is. Let's mm. talk about she should. I mean, they that. basically have the same plot. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's like it's a woman. You know, she she gets pregnant and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. So she should have said no. Sam Newfield is another one of our favorite directors here. He's kind of the anti Edgar G. Ulmer. Not here though. No, not here. Here, I think he outdoes Ulmer. Mm-hmm. So, but Sam, if you had shown me both films and said which one did Edgar G. Ulmer direct and which one did Sam Newfield direct, wouldn't take me a second to go. Oh, she should have said no. It's definitely an Ulmer joint. Yeah. So Martin Scorsese famously said of Sam Newfield, Sam Newfield, that's a tough one. You can't do a lot with that. Mm-hmm. I think those were his exact words. Sam Newfield made 300 movies. Uh, kept cranking them out. Terror of Tiny Towns, probably mm-hmm. the most famous one. You can get The Mad Monster on Gold Ninja Video. But listen, A Broken Clock, even on that mon- Mad Monster Blu-ray, that second film, Will watch and He's like, hey, it's pretty good. <laughs> yeah, Sam Newfield. So I'm watching She Should Have Said No. This guy knows how to direct a movie. He does. This guy knows how to pace a scene. He knows how, where to put the fucking camera. I also just found this movie very entertaining from start to finish. So one of the big novelty ideas of She Should Have Said No is that it stars the woman that was arrested with Robert Mitchum for drug possession. That's right. Lila Leeds. They both spent 60 days in jail. Robert Mitchum, of course, already had a bit of a bad boy reputation, so he did fine. Lila Leeds, not so lucky. And in Not this, famous, not rich. And in this movie, I think you bring a lot of that extra textual bad baggage to her role she plays just a a normal middle-class girl who works at a dance hall as a chorus girl so that she can raise enough money to send her genius brother to college she ends up descending into a web of vice and sexual promiscuity i mean we got to talk about the first scene where she does marijuana where it's at a party everyone's dancing there's a bad girl that's like smoke up and then a joint is put in her hand she's taught to smoke it by holding it close to fist and is it just because they don't want to show people her smoking the weed i think it's uh, Maybe it's because they think it's like a match where if the wind gets at it, it'll blow out. <laughs> I, I guess. Don't know. This scene is great. And this movie came out in 1949. So it's much later in the exploitation movie cycle. And just seeing this scene, I, w- I was wondering if certain of these things had become tropes at this point. Mm-hmm. Like had Sam Newfield seen Reefer Madness and Marijuana and he almost had a sense of humor about this because they use theremin music during this scene. <laughs> Like, they really ham it up in a way that I think is self-aware. And most of the scene plays as a, on a close-up of her face, being like... <laughs> and you see, like, fades into, like, the people dancing. There's an Ulmer-like shot of her just token up and the shadow of a woman stripping right beside her. <laughs> Very fun. Oh, uh, Lyle Talbot is in this movie. The faded former Warner Brothers contract player who later worked with Ed Wood. Uh, anytime Lyle Talbot's in a movie, I'm clapping like a seal uh, he plays the head of the vice squad and he brings her in at one point because i mean the, the plot is complex when her brother finds out that uh, she's fallen into this life of depravity he hangs himself in the garage <laughs> as, one would do. as one would do when one sees one sibling go astray yeah smoking some of that weed sitting in a chair there's a great sequence where a guy sits at a piano after token up and then just like as a ghost floats to an expressionist uh, piano where he just plays for like five minutes now the scene where Lyle Talbot, as the head of the Vice Squad, takes Lila Leeds through another trope of these movies, just the den of shame, just from cell to cell as he sees, look at all these (laughs) reefer fiends. I love the scene where he's like, look at her. This was a year before she got addicted to the devil's lettuce. Now look at her now. Ah! (laughs) So good. Or I like that one woman who has the track marks all up and down her arm and she's like, yeah, yeah, keep looking, you know. (laughs) 
this scene i think is shot so beautifully it is like again expressionist camera angles heavy shadows sam newfield the god you there's know? a montage <laughs> of her just token up and the camera keeps like zooming in on people you can see there's like a track and I'm like sam newfield he showed up to work on this day how about that scene where she's she has to go to prison and in her prison cell she's haunted by the horrible memories she goes cold turkey which <laughs> drives her mad and while she's suffering withdrawal she's in her beautifully lit prison cell and the the voices of all the people saying kid killer kid killer kid killer this movie really works itself up into a frenzy and sam newfield he is a consummate entertainer so of course the film ends with a fist fight oh yeah <laughs> people being thrown off balconies you know he gives you all your money's worth so is there any reason to watch these movies today well this one very entertaining very entertaining but what about some of the other ones like you know uh, any of those other ones like if you were going to make a case for why should people watch these mm, i think i would probably say it's interesting to see what was not allowed during this period and the way that people went around it Mm -hmm. and that there's entertainment value in that and like this is what filmmakers that were on the fringes were selling to the masses and this is what was successful which is why you're watching these copies of these films yeah and i think i would also say that if you're interested in things that are not the official history i mean uh, we all know that these were quote-unquote repressive times We all know these were buttoned up times, but it's just interesting to know that our grandparents and great-grandparents did have blood circulating in their veins. But Will, before we close this topic, I did do one more film. Because I need the three pillars. I had to watch a nudist camp movie. Oh, what'd you watch? I watched the Forbidden Fruit one, Unashamed. Okay, I have seen this one, and uh, I liked it quite a bit. Now, the nudist camp film, is there value in that these days? Uh, in small doses, maybe. They're kind of funny. They're cute. Unashamed is notable for being a 30s nudist camp film, Mm -hmm. and it's a very classy one, and I gotta say, you know, I've never had any interest in, you know, checking out these nudist camp movies. Listen, everyone listen to this, you have the internet, you can see nudity wherever you want, but here, you get a naked ventriloquist dummy, you get musical numbers, and it actually looks pretty good, too. I do think this movie does have some atmosphere in it, and can I also say, the plot involves, there's a love triangle. You know, it's one of those movies where when I watched it, towards the end, I started to actually kind of feel something for this story. I mean, (laughs) it ends dramatically with the woman being um, dropped by her boss, and her climbing nude a mountain as (laughs) lightning strikes, and she's like, oh, she reaches the top of the mountain. And I don't know, I felt something in that last scene. So I would say that if you're going to watch any nudist camp movie, watch Edgar G. Elmer's The Naked Venus. Mm-hmm. And if you watch two or three or four or five, watch some Doris Wishman movies. Hey, don't forget the one with Sammy Petrillo as well. Oh yeah, Shangri-La, watch that. But if you watch 15, this should definitely be one of them. <laughs> the, asha- the Unashamed. And folks, uh, there are more than 15. <laughs> there are so many nudist camp movies. <laughs> Just rotting away on a shelf somewhere. And for people that don't know what happens in nudist camp movies, usually someone goes to a nudist camp and then you see them play volleyball. In this one, archery. Sometimes they get on bikes. Yeah, typically it's a reporter is going to go undercover to investigate uh, the nudist camp lifestyle. And then they go and they think they're going to do a hit piece, but then they find out that actually nudism is wonderful and healthy and good. Mm -hmm. And it's not like real life. It's not 99.5%, you know, old dudes walking around nude. And it usually starts with a disclaimer that's like, judge ye not. Uh, Many of the people in this movie really do practice the lifestyle, you know, to bolster the documentary bona fides. So unashamed, it was a fun watch and I would tentatively recommend it. I mean, a lot of nudity in it. 
Well, <laughs> I would hope so. I'm there. <laughs> so I mean, you own it on Blu-ray. Let's be of honest. Of course I do, and I and I enjoyed it very much. Maybe I'll watch it again tonight. Who knows? <laughs> yeah, and then fall asleep quickly afterward. Completely unrelated to the film. Have you ever seen just before <laughs> just before we push this side forever? Have you ever seen a movie called Child Bride? No, I have not. I've heard of it though. This movie is evil. Yes, monstrous. I mean, uh, we and it's on Blu-ray too. We didn't really get into the like late cycle. All right, we got to keep making exploitation films where it got like really mondo movie territory uh-huh, uh-huh. like what is the famous one that it's like the word for gorilla in oh god it's like Eniagi. Oh, oh okay i know the one you're talking about that was one where yeah it was kind of a fake documentary mm-hmm. where they took some documentary footage and then they inserted like a guy in a gorilla suit doing immoral things to perhaps some women yeah that's one that i haven't got around to watching yet but do i own the blu-ray yes i do mm. so the world of exploitation films this particular period of time is very fruitful forbidden fruit if you will and if people are wondering why 1959 is a cutoff date eric schaefer in his book points out that's when russ meyer's the immoral mr t's came out which introduced a whole different genre the nudie cuties which then transitioned into sexploitation which is different than the exploitation that had come before and we have various court rulings to thank for all of that mm-hmm. and so if you'd like to send us some letters you can do so at important cinema club podcast at gmail.com so our first letter is from james Barron. he goes Hey, Justin and Will. I found you by accident while looking for random Orson Welles stuff for, on SoundCloud and your Gary Graver and Orson episode popped off. I assume this pleases you. Yes, it does. It does, yeah. <laughs> I became a patroneer soonish after. I'd like to suggest an episode on, in my opinion, one of the most original and consistently underrated directors in the world ever, Quentin Dupieux. I don't think I've ever heard his name from your enchantingly enthusiastic Canadian mouse, so come on, <laughs> fellas, sort yourselves out and get worshipping at the altar Dupieux with me. Thanks for introducing me to loads of wicked stuff I had no idea about. Yours, Garyly Orsonly. James. Wow. wow, the things that this uh, enchanting <laughs> Canadian mouth can do. <laughs> well, uh, thank you very much for that letter, James. And so Quentin Pure is not someone I'm that familiar with. I became aware of him, probably when most people did, when Rubber started playing film festivals. And I remember my friend Peter, he loved Rubber. Couldn't stop talking enough about Rubber. And Rubber, I remember when that came out. I mean, I basically heard people talk about it like it was sort of a novelty. Mm-hmm. It was a, a very much like a prefabricated cult film. It's about a killer tire that has psychic powers. I mean, Wings Hauser is in it, which is a definite plus. And Eric see- Wareheim also, right? Yes. He was, uh, Quentin Dupieux did a lot of Eric Warheim stuff who would continue to appear in his films like Wrong Cops as a would go on and i saw rubber and i went eh, you know not really for me <laughs> well i've never seen a quentin dupuy movie because i don't know something about just the vibe of them the look of them has always rubbed me a bit the wrong way uh, they've always looked to me like oh hey we made a cult movie isn't this weird this is gonna be a cult movie and i don't know but I mean, the letter writer is very enthusiastic, calls him one of the most original voices. Maybe I should check him out before I dismiss him. I mean, Dupuis has continued to make movies, like, basically one a year. He's Woody Allening it. It was like Wrong Cops. Uh, he also has Dear Skin, which starred the artist himself in it. Oh, Jean Dujardin? Yeah, Jean wow. Dujardin. Like I said, I haven't seen any of them, but Peter continued to watch them after that, you know, that rubber... Uh, alliance and he said yeah they kind of feel kind of like half-formed ideas stretched out to feature lengths and maybe there's value in that like me and will have said we are not familiar at all with his work and because we're going to do every filmmaker ever on this podcast i'm sure we'll get to him eventually especially if he keeps making movies you know if you keep making movies and you keep putting them out you make a case to keep existing i mean the latter writer's enthusiasm here is compelling to me so i should check him out our next letter is from luke mosher and he goes rediscovering movies lost to memory hey guys love the podcast for first time writer i enjoyed will's recent article 
on the New Yorker's website about the saga of finding the cartoon elf from a childhood photograph. A great read and a great story. Something similarly happened to me recently that I thought I'd share. So the letter writer goes on to talk about how he saw a weird movie on TV and he didn't know what it was. And it was one of those things that's like, can it exist? Did I just imagine it? And then later on, he found out it was. There was this kind of a tin man and there was also a lion who <laughs> talked and as well as like a kind of man made of straw and they were all skipping along a road. I think it was yellow. Could somebody but make a movie of that, nobody, man? Nobody has ever been able to tell me what that was. <laughs> they must have been tripping out on it. I mean, Will's not going to get tired of those jokes for the next five years. <laughs> uh, but the letter writer mentions that he actually discovered it was James Coburn in a film called The President's Analyst, which is a very weird film if you've ever seen it. I've never seen it, but I keep getting Michael and us suggestions for it, actually. I should see it. And the letter writer asks... Uh, now that the mystery of the cartoon elf man has been solved, are there any movies out there that you guys are still searching for? Or any fun stories or childhood movies that you thought were lost but then rediscovered as an adult? Keep up the good work, Luke. Well, I think on this podcast, was it this podcast? Yeah, you did. You mentioned that you couldn't figure out this, like, sad Christmas tree movie. Yeah, I'll, I'll tell this again. When I was in senior kindergarten, they showed us this movie in senior kindergarten that was about a Christmas tree, and it was set in, like, turn of the 20th century times. It was all about the lives and loves of this you know well-to-do affluent family who had a christmas tree and it was narrated by the christmas tree and it was live action and you know i remember finding it kind of boring as a kid but then the the christmas tree was narrating it and it was always saying things like oh the family is treating me wonderfully today blah 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 blah, blah. <gasps> At the well, end. <laughs> that's the twist he loses all his needles christmas is over and they burn the tree <laughs> now i remember it being i don't know if it's actually like this but i remember hearing his screams of agony uh you know what i guarantee you i will include this on the important cinema club christmas feed no elf <laughs> cartoons but i'll include this one well you might not be able to because so i said this and i i had spent years i was up late at night on imdb like anything with the word christmas in the title between 1975 and 1995 i couldn't find it until one listener and whoever it was thank you so much said it was a movie called the fir tree there is a clip you can find of it on youtube the only way to see it is to pay like 200 bucks to rent the <laughs> really? video from <laughs> And if you're willing to do that, I'll no, go, I'm not willing I'll go to do have that. these because <laughs> nope. I want to see it again, but there's no other way to see it. I don't have Michael and us millions. I can't <laughs> afford to get something like that. Fair enough. Yeah. Now it's that forbidden fruit, right? It's like, well, you can't see this. You can see everything else in the world, but not this specific thing. And you just throw it all away. And you're like, I need this. So that movie is still my holy grail, as is David the Rock Nelson's Conrad Brooks versus the Werewolf. That's a movie I've wanted to see for a long time, but it's very hard to find. So if anyone has a digital file, Conrad Brooks Brooks versus the werewolf. Please get in touch. I want to see it. And I can't really think of anything that I saw as a kid that I didn't know what it was or it's haunted me since then. I remember when I saw, and I've said the story before, Army of Darkness on television. I didn't know what it was, but my friend just told me like a couple days after, eh, mystery was solved. I'm pretty good that I can like see if I walk into like a video store and I say that as they still exist. And by that, I mean Bay Street Video and see something on television. And within like 30 seconds, I usually know what it is, even if I have never seen it before, mm. just based on context clues mm -hmm. but i mean if the fur tree was playing on television i go oh, what the hell is this i don't know what this is <laughs> And do people still get haunted by that kind of stuff? The world is an on-demand one. So if a kid's watching something, they know what it is. I suppose that's so. But if you look at the YouTube comments of just any video of, of something from the 90s, mm. you'll often see comments of people like, oh, that's what this yeah, is. Yeah, but that's from the 90s. I mean, like, kids today. Probably, though, because, like, 
kids today are just exposed to so many more images. They see so many videos mm. from everywhere, and and those things are often ephemeral. They disappear. Yeah, that's right. Now with the streaming services, they'll just be gone forever, mm-hmm. and no one's recording them, so they'll never be able to find them. Ten years from now, none of that exists. No file sharing, no nothing. No one can watch anything anymore except for Big Disney. And the polar ice caps will be <laughs> yeah, completely we'll melted. be dead by this yeah. point, so it doesn't really matter that much. So our next letter is from Jonathan Michaels, and he goes, Hey, Justin and Will, I'm an independent journalist and documentary filmmaker based in Durham, North Carolina. As a fan of the Important Cinema Club podcast, I want to get your thoughts about an idea to put pressure on film at Lincoln Center to finally relaunch the print edition of Film Comet magazine. I don't have a lot of sway there. Yeah, I wish I, I would like that, though. And he says that, like, maybe if we all send letters that we'll be able to perhaps show them that there's interest in it, and then they'll start republishing it. I should say, I love Film Comet magazine. Second favorite periodical uh, when it comes to movies. Number one is shock cinema. Of it's course. not going to be uh, taken over. Of course. But when it comes to new stuff, film comment, so good, so like personable and readable in a way that I thought even outdid something like Sight and Sound. And I was really disappointed when the print edition stopped basically when the pandemic happened. Yeah. And you could tell that the people who are in charge of making a decision like that were just like looking for any reason to be like, no more film comment magazine. Sorry, guys. It's Bye. sad. And I know that there's a newsletter that they do that has a lot of good writing in it. Mm. But I mean, we could put pressure on it, but I feel like it's probably not just a valid thing for them anymore. Like the only way for a magazine like that to continue to exist was to be get in newsstands and places where magazines are sold. And the reality is there just ain't that many anymore. I guess I'm glad that they still use the name Film Comment, which means that the brand still means something to them. Mm -hmm. And maybe that means it could be resurrected in a more fulsome way in the future. Like, perhaps it could go down a way that Mubi has a magazine, but it's a very specific, expensive, kind of like quarterly direct-to-consumer magazine. That's the only really way they could do it. But then that wouldn't be Film Comment, because there was a kind of, oh, this is what's happening right now. Here are the little asides. You know, consume it. You can get it, put it away, but it's not like something that, well, I guess I paid $30 for this. So I'm putting it on my shelf. It ain't going anywhere. Yeah. Uh, we would like for it to happen. If people want a message film comment, you can, but I feel they're going to be like, yeah, I, no, we, it's just not financially viable anymore. Mm-hmm. Is that, does that make us Debbie Downers <laughs> that we're like, maybe, but yeah, if you want to write a letter, you should. What you should really do is send us money. Yes. And if we get enough of it, perhaps Important Cinema Club Journal Volume 2 will come out. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. I would like to do that. <laughs> yes, that's right. So uh, thank you very much for all your letters you can send us more on important cinema club podcast at gmail.com this week on our patreon will i mean listen we were gonna do this this was inevitable (laughs) yeah so right after we record right after we finish recording this justin and i are heading out to the young and undass cineplex to see the most important movie of the fall season clerks three i may be talking in a funeral style way now perhaps when we start recording the patreon episode i'll be all sunshine smiles and laughs it might be good who knows (laughs) will has spoiled himself for this movie in the same way people spoil themselves for like episode one of star wars yeah (laughs) i've read all the reviews but but listen you've read like the typed out dialogue that someone took while they saw the movie I mean, what cannot be spoiled is the purity of a Brian O'Halloran performance. I'm a Jeff Anderson man myself. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Just seeing those, just (laughs) seeing the boys withered faces. Like you could, you could spoil a musical performance by describing it, Mm. but to experience it, to see it, to feel it. (laughs) You have, to, you have to do those things. So that's what we're doing on Patreon, patreon.com slash The Important Cinema Club. Next week, we're going to be talking about hmm, one of the greatest action filmmakers slash choreographers of all time, Yu Wo Ping. 
crazy that we haven't got to him yet. You mean the fight choreographer behind Kill Bill <gasps> and The Matrix and Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon? Yes, he did those. But as I like to say, those are real baby time movies because <laughs> before then he had literally redefined what action filmmaking could be with the films that he made with his brothers, the Young Clan, and films like Miracle Fighters. He kind of defined the grounded wuxia style and stuff like Iron Monkey. And I mean, his action choreography in Troy Hark's Once Upon a Time in China too. that is like legendary work as well. So what are we going to watch? I mean, because he's directed a number of movies. I think we'll be focusing on the movies he directed. Mm -hmm. So I think we should probably tackle stuff like uh, Shaolin Drunkard and Iron Monkey. And I'll probably toss a third one in there. Do we want to go his late period to see where he's doing with films like um, the David Carradine True Legend? Which I saw theatrically. (laughs) And it's fun. It's it's fun. He's still doing his thing. I think I'd rather watch a Golden Age one, though. I mean, I also I also enjoyed that one. uh, Master Z, the legacy. If you're going to do it, you want to go old school, right? Some classic stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe some like, you know, around those early 80s. He has like the Buddhist fist. Mm. He had the snuff bottle connection. Those like real old school martial arts films. And we could trace his evolution of going from like he is one of the hundreds of people working as a stunt person at the Shaw Brothers studio to, oh, he's the best that ever was. I mean, he redefined his style in the 90s thanks to the Tiger Cage movies. You know, Tiger Cage 1 and 2. I just got the Blu-rays of those. Those films are great. So he's someone who could constantly evolve, work with the times and find new stuff. And he'll be our subject next week. So until then, my name is Justin Clue. I'm Will Sloan. Thanks for listening. If you are in Toronto, Canada, coming up on October 2nd and 3rd, make sure to check out Gold Ninja Video, who will have a table, and by who I mean me, who is mostly the entirety of Gold Ninja Video, will have a table at Horrorama. It's a great little horror convention. I love it when it happens every year. And this year, I will be there with a bunch of Gold Ninja Video stuff. Will I have perhaps some out-of-print discs that will have mysteriously made it onto the table? Maybe. So if you would like more information, just search Horrorama in whatever search engine that you use. Google, Bing, Ask Jeeves. And there will be a page that will show up with more info. And as per usual, I would like to thank some of our new patrons that I've joined recently, who include Alex Rose, Meredith Massey, Stephen Jennings, I.C., Jeremy Nias, James Baker, Rick, Zach Hurley, Tom, Richard E., Sergio Bastos, Ned Grade, William T. Klugel, Kale Farnes, Billy Jackson, Graham, Michael Davies, and Primrose Path. Thank you very much for becoming patrons. We could not do it without you. And if you're already a patron, or you just can't afford to be at the moment, make sure to give us a review at whatever podcast thingy that you use, whether it be Apple Podcasts, which is very helpful, or other stuff like Spotify, or even Podcast Addict has its own review thing. Get on there, give us a review, we would very much appreciate it. And now, we return you to your regular scheduled programming. Would you consider yourself a collector, Will? Yeah, I would, actually. Mm. Yeah, there are lots of things I collect. And when it comes to film-related stuff, beyond movies and Blu-rays, that constant need to own these things, because we feel they will then slip between our fingers, especially with the artificially created, oh, there's only a certain number limited edition of Gold Ninja Video releases that you can be had. <laughs> so you got to get it now. Isn't it difficult to like continually consume until you have all the stuff that you need to be happy? Well, the thing is that void will never, never be filled. Be filled. Yeah. No. Recently, I got 
a Curly Joe doll. Oh man, Curly Joe Dorita, the last stooge, mm-hmm. the the guy who Mo and Larry got to replace Shemp and Curly when they got popular again. So me and Will were talking about this uh, a couple weeks ago, and I was like, "Is there any Curly Joe toys?" We were in a in a hotel room. We were in Pennsylvania. And we were so excited that we were going to go see Have Rocket Will Travel on the big screen. And yeah, we started saying, like, what's some Curly Joe memorabilia? We both took to eBay. Because we should point out that when Curly Joe joined the Stooges, it was at the height of their popularity. And basically all the Stooge material that came post that popularity was all Curly Joe related. I mean, he's on all the comic books. Mm -hmm. Just tons of memorabilia in the 60s. Oh, so he's in the photos of the comic books. Once you look at the pages, that could be Curly, right? Well, yeah. Yeah. We took to eBay. You found an official Curly Joe doll slash action figure. Um, Looking pretty svelte, I have to say. (laughs) (laughs) They they cut a few pounds off him. (laughs) But his photos on the box, that's really all that matters. And I found something just as good which was i found somebody was selling some of his actual stationery the actual curly joe had had letterhead in his home office that had his address at the top and had a little caricature of him <laughs> a little fat curly joe drawing and so i got a couple sheets of that <laughs> you didn't buy more after the ebay seller was like listen i got so much you want more well he did offer me more but then he wanted to charge me for more no thank you well yeah it was like 30 bucks for a sheet of paper for one sheet for one sheet worth and, it and, well yes worth it but then he said do you want more and i said yeah i'll take all you have and then he upped the bill to 150 bucks that's <laughs> like okay no sorry no no no, no listen, just... i'm only gonna frame one on my wall which is what you did yeah i'm not i'm not gonna use all of this <laughs> i need paper to write curly but joe folks, related good news stuff. for you you can get some curly joe stationery on ebay right now and you should join me in this pursuit now this made me think of do we own a lot of movie ephemera like weird movie stuff i've never become like a prop person or anything like no. that i think that you know that is a pursuit of the very rich you hear people on some of the like you know old timer movie podcast talk about it be like i need to hunt it down like Conan's original sword or something like that. Oh, yeah, that's way outside my pay grade. I don't have any <laughs> And of that. what would I do with that? Like, no. would it make me feel better if I put it on the wall and I stared at it? No. Does it make me feel good to see a Curly Joe figure on my shelf? Yes. <laughs> I mean, you're, you know the story that Steven Spielberg bought the Rosebud sled from Citizen Kane and, and Orson Welles said to Gary Graver, fuck, if I'd known you could get this much money, I'd have started just making sleds. <laughs> Didn't Joe Dante say, like, hey, it's not even a real one? I think Wells said that as well, because they burn the sled at the end mm-hmm. of the movie. But I guess it could be a sled from an earlier scene. I you mean know. one that they built and they didn't use and they had in storage in Spielberg? I mean, you've seen photos of Peter Jackson, right? That, like, he lives, he has this gigantic mansion filled with, like, props from his favorite movies. And there's videos of him, like, so sad going through it. He's like, yeah, look, this is the original Hal. Wow. Look at him. Charles Foster Kane himself. <laughs> exactly. But what do I have? I mean, I have a lot of lobby cards and mm. uh, stills and stuff like that for movies that I like. I mean, you got those Dragon Lives Again lobby cards. That's right. I have a lot of Bruceploitation lobby cards. In terms of like weird stuff that I have, I have two original glass slides that used to be put you know, in movie theaters, like they put them in the projector, just a color, a hand painted glass slide to advertise a movie. So I have one for Edgar G. Ulmer's <laughs> Island of Forgotten Sins. Oh, nice. And I have one for a Billy West comedy. <laughs> oh, I knew it was going to be a Billy West thing. B- Billy West was the guy who imitated Charlie Chaplin in the 1910s. Do you have like a Billy West eBay like alert? Because I am constantly searching Billy West on eBay and I'm always finding, you know, the voice art Futurama shit every now and then. So I have two Billy West original lobby cards. Cards. And I also have 
a sheet of paper from some exhibitor in the 1910s, some states rights person that has a little caricature of Billy West in the upper left corner. I mean, you also found, much to my surprise, Super 8 shorts of Billy West films. I do have two of those. And if I can get two more, then we can get a Golden Ninja <laughs> video release going. And that's kind of like Grandma got me a Charlie Chaplin film at the flea market. You're like, hey, <laughs> wait, wait a minute. This doesn't feel right. That's right. I do have a bunch of original posters. Uh, above my shoulder, you can see one of Armed Response, the David Carradine... Lee Van Cleef. ...movie directed by Fred Olin Ray. <laughs> yeah, it's a beautiful one. In my storage unit in Kitchener, I have a poster that I keep meaning to give you next time I'm in Kitchener. Oh, that's right. You got the Mean Guns poster, right? Yeah, I was at the St. Jacob's Farmer's Market, and I couldn't believe it. They had a Mean Guns poster. <laughs> An original theatrical one sheet. Well, I say theatrical home one video. sheet. Home video. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Because I never played theatrically. I mean, you have a bunch of posters in your home, too. Oh, yeah. Uh, and they're classy ones, though. Well, I, I, I don't know. I have, I have lots of different kinds of posters. I Wait, mean, wasn't there one that you're like, ah, I had it up before me and Dancy got together? Oh, well, I used to have a framed Fitzcarraldo poster. <laughs> okay. And Dancy, you know, she's very tolerant of a lot of things, but she said, listen, I don't want a rapist on the wall. <laughs> I mean, and I said, a, okay, fair enough. Yeah. That's a big change from when I remember going to Will's house and he literally had both Kinski biographies <laughs> portrayed outward on your shelf. <laughs> you're like, oh, that's, a li- that's the, you know, first printing the one that you can't really get uh, very easily anymore yeah i'm i'm anytime anyone visits i'm always bragging about all the all the <laughs> different editions of klaus kinski's biography i own but you know posters and stuff like that they're very classly portrayed i remember you have some jackie chan ones i got a fearless hyena poster up i just got actually one that i'm very excited about that i haven't put up which is a, a little flyer for a program that nick zed did at the anthology film archives Ooh. of the chuck berry porno tapes <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. And you're going to frame that and put it up? I, at some point, probably, yeah. And so is there stuff that you would want to start buying? Stuff that has been out of your price range that you're like, oh, man, if I could have that. No, no not yeah. really. I mean, look, if somebody said, do you want the rosebud sled? I'd I, take it. Yeah, but you're like, is it more than 200 bucks? Yeah. Like, yeah, it's like, no, thank you. Yeah, I have my limits. But you and know, where would you put a rosebud sled in your home? I don't know. Pro- yeah. Probably nowhere. In storage. Yeah. Which is probably where the Steven Spielberg one is to be honest yeah 